Hello everyone and welcome to the 106th Presidential Address of the Aristotelian Society. Our tradition is that um, the outgoing president hands over the baton to the incoming president, but I'm afraid Sarah Brody can't be with us this evening. So it's my great pleasure to introduce and welcome our new president and speaker this evening, Professor David Papineau. Professor Papineau was born in Italy and educated in Trinidad, England and South Africa. He has a BSc in Mathematics from the University of Natal and a BA and a PhD in Philosophy from Cambridge. He's lectured at Reading University, Birkbeck College London and Cambridge University and since 1990 he's been Professor of Philosophy at King's College London. He's been a President of the British Society for the Philosophy of Science and President of the Mind Association. Professor Papineau works on issues in metaphysics, philosophy of science, and the philosophy of mind and psychology. He's written a number of books, including Reality and Representation, Philosophical Naturalism, Introducing Consciousness, Thinking About Consciousness, The Roots of Reason, Philosophical Essays on Rationality, Evolution, and Probability, and most recently, Philosophical Devices. Um, proofs, probabilities, possibilities, and sets. And it's with great pleasure that I'd like to now introduce um, the talk for this evening entitled Sensory Experience and Representational Properties. Thanks, David. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, this is very exciting for me. Uh, I'm very grateful to the Committee of the Aristotelian Society for electing me to this post and I'm very honoured to be following Sarah Brodie and uh, 105 other presidents of the Society and I just hope I do as good a job as uh, my predecessors and in particular Sarah who I, I know to have been uh, not just a conscientious but also an inspiring president of the Society. Uh, Good. Sensory experience and representational properties. Uh, here's the plan of my talk. I mean, some of you will have read it. I'm, I'm going to kind of talk to the, to the uh, draft paper. I'll probably have to skip some, skip some bits of it. Uh, there's an introduction, and then there's some bits which are in blue because that's the negative critical bit of the paper. I criticise representationalism, and then in green, I offer a positive view and say some things in defense of it. So my talk has a very specific focus. I want to think about the nature of the conscious properties we instantiate when we have sensory experience. I'm, I'm specifically concerned with, with the metaphysical essence of these conscious properties and I'm not concerned with their epistemological significance or their sigmatic significance for enabling reference or anything like that. I've only started really working on this topic recently, and I'd always assumed for the last 30 years or more that I was a representationalist about, about perception. I thought, well, then, uh, uh, when I say perception, and I don't mean perception, read me as saying meaning sensory experience. I was a representationalist about sensory experience. I thought, well, of course, sensory experiences represent things to be thus and so. But... Now I've started working on this topic, I think that's all just wrong. 
And it's not because of the, the many awkward counterexamples that representationalism faces, it's because it seems to me that representational properties are just the wrong kind of thing to be conscious properties. So, why did I somehow think that representationalism was a good idea? Well, it offers various obvious attractions. I mean, for a start, there's every reason to suppose, and I fully uh, endorse this and will endorse this through the paper, that sensory experiences are representations. They guide agents in a way appropriate to uh, possibly only apparently perceived circumstances. And by my way of thinking, that makes them representational all right. In addition, representationalism has the obvious attraction that it offers a, a uniform account of veridical, illusory, and uh, hallucinatory experiences, the conscious properties involved there, without bringing any dubious entities like sense data into the story. Uh, uh, if my experience uh, that uh, blue shirt is present, the blue shirt is on me, uh, uh, is a representation, well, then it doesn't require there to be any actual blue thing any more than a sentence saying that the blue shirt is present uh, requires there to be something really blue. So by thinking of sensory experiences of representation, you can account for what's common between the good and bad cases without bringing anything like sense data into the story. So, even so, it seems to me now that representationalism is all wrong. I still think the sensory experiences, as I said, are representations all right. But I don't think that the conscious properties they involve are representational properties. Here's an analogy. The, the words I'm speaking now are, uh, put together in sentences, are representations, but their, their sound properties aren't the same as their representational properties. The two are only contingent. Those same signs could easily have meant something different. OK, so I'm going to criticize representationalism, but I will also, in the end, offer a positive view. And as the, so here's where I am. Sorry, I'm in the introduction. Uh, as the reference to uh, spoken sentences will uh, have suggested, uh, my view is that the conscious properties uh, that we instantiate when we have sensory experience are intrinsic and non-relational. So my view will have some overlap with those views of recent philosophers. You might think in particular of Ned Block and uh, Chris Peacock, who argue that there are qualia. There's some conscious properties involved in experience that are non-representational, they're intrinsic, they're representational, uh, sorry, they're intrinsic, they're non-relational. Uh, uh, Ned Block thinks of colours, especially, as falling into this category, and he talks of mental paint as the, the feature of experience, which is like paint rather than what the paint represents. So my view is just like that, except both Block and Peacock are quite explicit that they only think this for some of the conscious properties instantiated when we have experience. They think experience, some of the things going on are qualia, 
But other of the conscious things going on are representational, and I won't read the relevant footnote, but there's two quite explicit quotes there from Bloch and Peacock saying that uh, they want to argue that in addition to the conscious properties that are representational, there's some also non-representational ones. That's not my view. I think they're all non-representational. I think it's all paint. All uh, conscious properties involved in experience are, are intrinsically non-representational, non-relational. Uh, okay, I think that my positive view... Something funny about it. I, I think my positive view is just the obvious one. Uh, and uh, all that time I was a sort of representationist. In fact, I wasn't. I just had this view that I currently have. And I think that most people outside philosophy just take it to be obvious. I mean, not the people who haven't thought about it, but people who've reflected on uh, the nature of experience, especially in the sciences, just uh, take for granted the view that I'm going to defend. Uh, mm. It's a bit odd, and I'll talk about this later, that even so, my view doesn't seem to be one of the options on the agenda in philosophical discussions nowadays. There's books, I mean, discussions, there's sense datum theories discussed a bit and then dismissed, and then there's relationism, sorry, representationalism, and then there's direct realism. But the view that I'm going to defend, which I'll call non-relationism, just doesn't seem to be uh, uh, taken seriously. And it's a curious question, why, why so? I say my view is common sense, but I mean, I do admit it has some unattractive features, and I won't try to hide them later, later on. But I think all views of uh, sensory experience have unattractive features, and I think mine has a lot less unattractive features than the rest. In particular, I'm going to be arguing it has far fewer unattractive features than representationalism. I'm not going to discuss direct realism, disjunctivism in this paper at all. I'll, I'll use it to illustrate various points, but uh, uh, I don't intend this paper to be directed at that option. Uh, in a way, that option really isn't directed at the question I'm interested in. I'm interested in the conscious properties that are involved when we have sensory experiences, including illusory experiences and hallucinatory ones. And many disjunctivist direct realists set themselves up as saying, I don't care about the bad cases, I'm just going to tell you what's going on in the good cases, and the bad cases uh, is a topic for another, another day. So to that extent, uh, they aren't even addressing my question. Still, if we were going to have a full discussion of all the options, I would need to defend my option against direct realism. But uh, for now, all I want to do is to persuade you that representationalism is a bad idea, and my position is one worth considering. Okay. It's hard to see that clock. Is that, is that quarter two now? Good. Representationalism. So I've been talking about it without explaining what it is. What is it? Uh, so representationalists equate having a sensory experience as of a blue shirt, as of a, a pink rabbit, as of a room full of people with representing things to be thus and so. But of course they don't say that you're having sensory experience whenever you represent things to be thus and so because there's plenty of cases where you're representing but obviously not 
having sensory experience, as when you believe things, believe there to be a blue shirt present, believe there to be a room full of people, or you remember such things and so on. So representationists in general specify some kind of category of mental states within which experiencing things a certain way consciously can be equated with uh, representing them to be thus and so. So, for instance, Michael Tye says you can rule out the beliefs and uh, uh, memories and so on because he's concerned with mental representations that are poised, abstract, and non-conceptual. Panic. And he says, well, private representation like that, then how it feels consciously will be one and the same as how it represents things to be. Others think that Tye's view is too ambitious and you have to narrow down the categories not just to uh, poised, non-conceptual representation, but visual uh, such things, tactual such things, oral such things, and they will feel different, uh, even if they're representing the same. But within any such category, they think that the feeling is uh, one and the same as how things are represented to be. Those details won't matter, matter here. Let's just assume, for the sake of the argument, there's some way of specifying a category of mental states, maybe general uh, uh, states that play a certain immediate role uh, in guiding our actions, or maybe a state specified more closely as tactual, oral, visual. And let's suppose that representationists hold that within uh, such categories, uh, uh, the feelings are one and the same as how things are represented to be. Okay. Uh, any representationist view of this kind faces a number of counterexamples, a range of counterexamples, and they fall into two categories. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on these counterexamples and all the moves that can be made back and forth with respect to them. That's kind of not my focus. My focus is going to be more metaphysical. I'm going to show you that representational properties are just the wrong kind of thing to be conscious properties. But It'll be helpful just to have these examples in mind. It will help to see uh, what's at issue, and it will help to uh, see what the attractions of my positive view are. So I'll just remind you of the, the range of counterexamples that representations and faces, and uh, they fall neatly into two categories. Each counterexample involves a pair of contrast cases. The first category are ones where uh, you have the same representational content in both cases, but arguably the same representational content, but arguably different feelings. So the static, blurry vision. So I'm representing visually to be a cow in the next field. Uh, first case, I see everything clearly. Second case, it's all blurry. I've got tired. Uh, uh, lost my glasses or something. And the thought is, in both cases, you're representing there to be a cow in the field. But it feels different. Isn't that a problem for representationalists? How can there be a different feeling if how things are being represented are the same? Uh, another example is Peacock's visual field style examples. Two cases where I'm representing Sam there to be six feet tall. Uh, but first case, I'm standing here. Second case, I'm a lot closer. Uh, he fills up a lot more of my visual field. The feeling is the same, the conscious, experience, sorry, the conscious experience is different, but how things are being represented is just the same. Uh, 
Third case, familiar one, inverted spectrum. Uh, in both cases, you're representing the grass to be green, say. First case, person with normal vision. Second case, somebody who's been fiddled with at birth in such a way that what goes on in them when they look at grass is what goes on in normal people when they look at red tomatoes. Uh, you think, naturally, the, the feelings will be different, but what's being represented, greenness of the grass will be the same. So that's one category of, of, of cases, same representational content, different feelings. And then there's the converse category of cases, uh, cases where you have the uh, uh, same feelings, but different representational content. So this is the kind of case that got me worrying about this whole business. Uh, uh, Lookalikes. Uh, here's me. I see my wife come through the door. Rose comes through the door. And here, let's imagine a doppelganger on some uh, twin planet, uh, just like me. His wife comes through the door. I suppose she like looks just like my wife. So the feelings are the same. How visually it is for us consciously is just the same. But I'm representing my wife, and he's representing his wife. Different contents, same feelings. Uh, hallucinations. Uh, uh, two cases, I see a blue shirt here. Somebody else hallucinates a blue shirt to be there. Uh, same feelings, but uh, in my case, the content is that this shirt is blue. And in other case, the content is uh, something is blue, but there isn't something to be blue. And there's no, there's no well-formed content in the hallucinatory case. What's being represented to be blue? There's nothing there to, be, to form the same content. Inverted earths of this kind. Uh, inverted earth is an earthlings taken off to earth. It's inverted because grass is red and so on. But on his way, you fiddle with his eyes so that when he's there and he looks at the grass, what goes on in him is what goes on in us when we look at grass. And the natural thought is, at least after he's been there for a while, that he's representing redness, whereas here I'm representing greenness. But the feelings looks like they're going to be the same. What's inside him is just the same. Uh, final case, not in the literature as much as I would expect it to be. It's slightly surprising, but I'm, I'm going to talk about this case quite a lot. Cosmic swamp break. I mean, this kind of is the, the, the uh, meta case for all these uh, kinds of examples. So here's me having my experience. And cosmic swamp brain has coagulated by random chance in outer space, together with a supporting vat, uh, with all the kind of sensory inputs and motor outputs inside it, just the same as mine, for, let's say, half an hour or so. And as a natural thought, I'm not going to rest anything in the argument on this, but as a natural thought, that how it is for cosmic swamp brain is going to be just like how it is for me. Cosmic swap brains out there in our space, but it will feel to cosmic swap brain just like you know, all those people sitting out there and so on. But same feelings, different representational content. Where I'm representing all of you to be here, cosmic swap brain, if you ask me, is representing nothing at all. It's never been in contact with any environment. These states have no correlations with the properties being represented to be there, and so on. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of literature on these cases. Representationists accept the counterexamples in the terms in which they're posed. They try and uh, uh, fiddle with the, uh, 
in blurry vision, uh, are we really representing the same thing? Uh, inverted Earth, is it really the same feelings? They try and get uh, the, the uh, cases to line up with their requirement that feelings and representation go the same. I'm not going to look at all the moves that they make. I mean, that's not my focus. Uh, what I want to do now is step back and show you that reason, the reason they get into all these problems is because it was a stupid mistake to try and equate conscious feelings with representational properties in the first place. And once we see that, we'll see it's quite unsurprising that all these country examples should get generated. OK, so now I want to talk about representation and propositions. So what is it for somebody to represent things to be thus and so? Perhaps in the sensory mode or in the visual mode. Uh, now, representationists aren't always very explicit about it. They don't stop and tell us what exactly what representation is. But most of them seem to presuppose that representation, and sensory representation in particular, is a matter of the subject bearing some relation to a proposition. The proposition that this shirt is blue. Uh, the proposition that uh, this room is full of people. Now, how are we supposed to think about subjects being related to propositions? One, one model is inspired by familiar talk of propositional attitudes. Believing is a matter of the subject wearing, bearing the believing relation to a proposition. Uh, 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 hoping is the matter of the subject bearing the hoping relation to proposition. So maybe sensory experience is the matter of the subject bearing the sensory relation, the sensing relation to a proposition, or perhaps the, the, perhaps the, 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 the seeing relation to a proposition. So that's one model. The propositional attitude model. Another model might work rather differently. Uh, maybe the idea is that I'm in some state, perhaps an intrinsic state. Think a, think a brain state, or if you like, think a dualist mind state, some, some state I can get into, some, some other kind of non-representational -prop property I, can, I, I, I might have. And then that state expresses a proposition. You might take as your model the way that philosophy of language, linguistics often think of sentences as expressing propositions. I might, I might not be directly related via the sensing relation to proposition, rather I, I, I house some state which expresses a proposition. Now you might, if you wanted, to spend a lot of time thinking about these models, how exactly they're supposed to work. But I'm going to cut through that. I'm not especially going to pause and criticise the the awkwardness of these models, I want to go to something more immediate. Uh, and that's the worry that propositions are abstract entities. They're abstract objects. They're things that exist outside space and time. And it seems to me something very odd indeed about the idea that my here and now conscious feelings can be constituted by my bearing any relation to an object outside space and time. I think the best way to bring this point out is to compare propositions with facts. So 
I was brought up philosophically in Cambridge. I take facts to be the basic things. The world is a totality of facts. Uh, uh, there's a fact that my shirt is blue. That's a fact, my shirt is blue. And then there's the proposition that my shirt is blue. And slightly confusingly, both are identified by the phrase, that my shirt is blue. And both involve the same object, my shirt, and both involve the same property, blueness. But they're very different. As I see it, the fact's a concrete thing. My shirt has the property blueness. It's located in space and time. It's the kind of thing that has causes and effects. It's a real, a real entity, the fact. Uh, the proposition that my shirt is blue isn't like that at all. I mean, even if my shirt were green, there'd still be the proposition that my shirt is blue. And in fact, many people want there to be a proposition that my shirt is blue, especially in the case where my shirt is green, to serve as the content of the false belief or the illusion that my shirt is blue. So propositions aren't facts, they're kind of possible facts. And there's you know, various familiar ways of analysing propositions in, in philosophy. Uh, some people, David Lewis and this one, re regard propositions as sets of possible worlds. Uh, I far prefer, if I'm going to think about propositions at all, to think about them in Russell's way. There's some kind of structure made out of the object and the property of blueness, but kind of put together in a way that's different from the way property, the shirt and the blueness are put together in a fact. Fregeans want to think of propositions as, as a similar kind of structure, but now made of senses that have the shirt and the blueness as reference rather than the reference themselves. I don't mind which way you think about propositions. On any way of thinking about propositions like that, propositions are abstract objects. They are, they're outside space and time. They don't enter into causal relations. And this just seems to me a, a fatal problem when you think about it for the idea that sensory consciousness is a matter of representing things to be thus and so. Because now we've got an idea how it is for me, here and now, my, my here and now feelings are constituted by my bearing some relation to an abstract entity outside space and time. Now, I don't know if I've got much more to say if uh, you don't find, I just think that's, that's such a weird idea. I was, I, when, when I finally realised that that's what representation is thought, I was, I was rather, rather shocked, I was surprised. How can they possibly think that? Makes no, makes no sense. It's, it's helpful, I think, here to compare representationalism with direct realism. So direct realists hold that sensory experiences in the good case, when I'm seeing my shirt to be, to be blue, they think that the fact that my shirt is blue is literally part of my conscious, conscious state, and indeed, what makes it feel like it does. My mind somehow, uh, my mental state, includes the fact that my shirt is blue as a part, and that's what uh, constitutes its feeling like that. Now, you might find this a bit weird, that, that your conscious state can depend on how things are outside your body, and I find that a little bit weird. But that's not nearly as weird as what the representationalists think. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I, I kind of... Uh, 
try and force myself to to regard direct realism as kind of the position worth thinking about on this matter. It seems to me a serious, a serious option. But the idea that my consciousness is being constituted not by my relation to a fact that's here in front of me, but my relation to an abstract entity outside space and time. That looks, that looks very odd indeed. So, I'm going to have to, to skip somewhere. Where shall I skip? I can skip through this section. Just keep to the main points. Uh, you might think that this talk of propositions isn't to be taken seriously. Perhaps we can think of talk of propositions, that's something we do in everyday discourse, but it's a, a convenient device for referring to representational properties and not really part of the metaphysical essence of representation. You might look for a way of thinking about representation that doesn't bring in these abstract entities, and then you could equate the consciousness with representation so conceived, representation conceived without bringing in propositions. And I think this is an attractive avenue to explore in, in any case. I mean, I, while I'm against the idea that conscious sensory properties are constituted by representational facts, I certainly think there are representational facts. Uh, there's mental representation, linguistic representation. And I think of this as a natural phenomenon that's in space and time makes a difference to what happens. And so, there must be some way of thinking about representation that doesn't involve a commitment to abstract propositions. Now, in fact, this line of thought turns out not to be much help to representationists, but, I, but I'd like to explore it a bit because it will be helpful for seeing how I think about representation generally. Uh, the model here would be the philosophy of applied maths. Uh, it's a familiar analogy. I mean, the, the, the analogy is going to be like propositions stand to representation in the way that numbers stand to physical processes. When we do physics, we often refer to certain properties as involving certain abstract numbers. I specify the mass of somebody by saying that body bears the mass in grams relation to a certain real number. And it's pretty much impossible to do physics, I mean, in practice without, without that kind of talk. But nobody, I take it, seriously thinks that the, the tendency of this body to resist acceleration under some force is grounded in its relation to an abstract number outside space and time. And the natural thought is that this way of thinking of the body as related to a number, that's just a way of labeling an intrinsic mass property the body has. And Hartree Field has uh, developed a whole, whole program in the philosophy of applied mass, uh, uh, developing this thought. Okay, uh, what do I want to take out of this? I mean, Field is a fictionist. He thinks this is an argument for being sceptical about the existence of abstract numbers. That's not the issue that worries me 
at all here. That's, that's not what I want to take out of Field. What Field also has is a way of thinking about physical processes in what he calls nominalist terms, not involving the, the abstract numbers. And, and he tries to, to uh, show in some detail how physics could be done like that, in principle, but not in, pra if not in practice. Now, there's a lot of kind of uh, technical criticisms of Field, does his particular way of showing how you could do physics without the numbers actually work. My own feeling, and I, I recommend Mary Leng's recent book in the philosophy of mathematics on this point, is that it's a mistake to think that the virtue of Field's metaphysical message rests on the successful execution of his, his detailed technical program. It seems to me that we could have every reason to suppose that physical processes don't involve abstract numbers, even though we haven't yet figured out how to do physics without referring to them. And the natural response, if we haven't figured that out, is to say, that's because we're not smart enough. We haven't figured it out yet. It's not because abstract numbers really are part of physics. OK, so the thought might be that in the case of representation and propositions, we should adopt the same picture. That there's representational facts that don't involve propositions, but it's convenient as it is in physics to refer to numbers, to refer to propositions uh, in specifying the structure of these representational facts. And the best way of showing this would be to work out in detail how such a non-proposition way of talking about representation would work. But you might, analogously to the point I just made about Field's program, uh, say that we have every reason to believe that representation is like that, not involving propositions, even though we can't fill in the details. You might feel that this is much too hand-waving. You might accept the point, well, we could believe this metaphysical story without knowing all the details, if, it, if we had at least some indication of how it might go. And, uh, of course, uh, that's a perfectly reasonable challenge. For those of you who feel that, I, I think it's worth recalling Davidson's approach to meaning. So you'll remember that for Davidson... You've got the case where some vehicle, some sentence, some, some mental state, some brain state, some dualist mind state represents that P. Davidson thought the best way to convey the commitments of uh, a truth like that is as equivalent to S is true if and only if P. Uh, my essential experience is true if and only if my shirt is blue. And then uh, Davidson thought that the great virtue of this way of thinking about representation is that it didn't involve the reification of truth conditions. Davidson was an arch-nominalist. He, I mean, he didn't only dislike prop propositions, he disliked properties as well, but let's leave that, he certainly disliked propositions. He wanted to think about representation in a way that didn't involve commitment to propositions, and uh, the whole Davidsonian approach to meaning is, uh, in a way, uh, a system designed to dispense with propositions. Now, uh, Davidson's program kind of stumbled at a few points, and I wouldn't recommend uh, following it out in detail, but I think that uh, that kind of approach to meaning offers the prospect 
of thinking about representation in a way that doesn't involve propositions. So that's a possibility for representationists. Sure, it would be crazy to think that conscious experiences involve relation to propositions, but we don't need to take that talk of propositions seriously. Let's just go for some more nominalized, non-proposition way of thinking about representations, and then can't we think of uh, conscious properties as uh, the same as representational ones? Well, I want to shoot ahead to my positive view in a second, but let me explain why, at least at first pass, this, this offer of a nominalized approach to representation is unlikely to be accepted by the representationalists. And this is to do with what they have to say about hallucinations. Uh, turns out that the difficulties they face in connection with hallucinations are likely to make them appeal to abstract objects after all. And the problem is that hallucinations don't seem to have truth conditions at all. This was something I alluded to earlier when I said there was this problem of generic hallucinations. Suppose I'm hallucinating a blue shirt. I'm, I haven't got an illusion that this shirt is blue. I'm hallucinating a blue shirt, no blue shirt at all, no, no shirt at all. I'm just hallucinating that in empty space uh, there is a blue shirt. Trouble is that that's not going to have a truth condition, even if you think about it in a nominalized Davis Davisonian way. Uh, what's the condition that's going to rem render that hallucination ridicule? That, uh, uh, that something is blue, or what? I mean, there's no thing there to, uh, to allow us to construct a truth condition for that uh, mental state. We can't divide logical space, so to speak, into the region where that shirt is blue and the region where that shirt is not, because there ain't no that shirt there in this case. This is actually a central issue for representationists. What do they want to say about this kind of case? And it quickly requires them to deny that the conscious properties of any experiences are determined by singular representational contents in the sense of contents involving specific particular entities. So when it comes to hallucinations, uh, there isn't any truth condition involving a particular entity, so they need to find some other, some other kind of condition which doesn't involve uh, a particular. But then they think that illusions and vertical perceptions, which do have an object there, have to have the same conscious character as the hallucinations. And they want to explain conscious character in terms of representational properties. So they have to deny that any experiences have a singular content. Now, there's various ways of doing this. And uh, until fairly recently, standard way has been completely discredited by Matt. And what most representationists now say <laughs> is that Experiences have a kind of content that doesn't involve objects at all, whether referred to or generalized over. It's kind of gappy content. It's just kind of saying blueness and shirtness uh, uh, around uh, without uh, suggesting there's any particular to which that, those properties might be uh, attached. So 
Now the representational content of my experience is just the property blueness or shirtness. Uh, and now I think we have all the problems that we had with propositions again. Properties abstracted from facts in which they're instantiated are abstract entities once more. And the idea that my conscious experience when I'm hallucinating a blue shirt consists in my having some relation to the property blueness. And now remember the property blueness out there outside space and time. It's not having some relation to the property blueness which is over here in the shirt because it's not over here in the shirt. That seems to me again a very odd idea. And that's what the representationists, they think. They think that the feeling that I have when I'm hallucinating a blue shirt or indeed uh, seeing a real blue shirt consists of my bearing some relation to the property blueness conceived of as an abstract entity outside space and time. Again, the comparison with direct realism is helpful, I think. Uh, uh, it's one thing to hold with a direct realist that my consciousness is constituted by the actual shirt and its blueness. Blueness as instance here, yeah, just across the, the, uh, the room from me. So there's, there's, there's a fact involving blueness. That's a perfectly good thing to constitute some here and now property. And you might think it's a bit kind of external, but it's not so bad. But now we've got a completely different idea, that it's my relation to blueness as a property outside space and time. That's what's making me feel like I do. Uh, again, that seems to me just as bad as the propositions. OK, I had some stuff about broadness, which is a kind of orthogonal issue for the representationists, but I'll just skip over that. And I now want to use the remainder of my time saying some things about my positive view. So my positive view is that we should identify the conscious properties of sensory experiences with the vehicle properties of those experiences rather than their rep representational properties. Uh, I don't doubt that all experiences are representational, but what makes them feel like they do is not what they represent, but the means by which they represent. Here's an analogy. I have uh, that's in the paper, not on the handout. Take the sentence, Paris is south of London. And it's a sentence in inverted commas. Uh, uh, that has a representational property of being true if and only if Paris is south of London. But it also has a bunch of vehicle properties, being written in Times Roman, being 12-point, being black, and so on. In a different world, something with just those vehicle properties could have had quite different representational properties. Different language, they could have had different representational properties. My positive proposal is that conscious properties are analogous to the sentence's vehicle properties rather than its representational properties. They're simple intrinsic properties uh, whose instantiation in fact represents to, th to subjects that things are thus and so, but the conscious properties aren't the complex property of being so represented to. Now, I think this is a very simple, straightforward view, and it has all the benefits of representationalism and none of the defects. So, 
I started by saying that one attraction of representationalism is it gives a uniform account of the good and bad cases, veridical, illusory, hallucinatory perceptions. So does my non-relationship. Is the same vehicle involved in all three cases? Of course, it feels the same. Uh, some of you who aren't in this area might think, why is he making such a fuss? Isn't it just obvious what he's saying? I think it is. It's just surprising that this is not one of the standard philosophical views in this area. Uh, this non-relationist view has no need to trade in abstract objects in giving an account of the conscious, conscious properties. The conscious properties consist in the vehicle properties. Think of the shape in the sentence and not in the sentence or the mental state representing what it does. Thirdly, and then I've got thirdly and fourthly, but I'll just do it quickly, I think. All those tricky counterexamples for the representationalists just dissolve away when you adopt the non-relational view. Uh, the, the blurry vision, the visual field, the uh, inverted spectrum you'd be fiddled with at birth. Uh, why shouldn't it feel different? You've got different vehicles. They might be representing the same thing, but the, but the vehicles of representation are the same in all three cases, so it will feel... No, sorry, the different vehicles, it will feel different. The converse case, uh, which were all cases where intrinsically similar subjects were embedded in different environments and therefore represented different things, well, again, of course it will feel the same because they're intrinsically identical, they have the same vehicle properties. Those same vehicles in different environments represent different things. But why I think that makes a conscious difference once you identify the conscious properties with the vehicle properties rather than representational ones. Natural question to ask at this point is, this all seems a bit cheap. Isn't there a big problem about which vehicle properties do I want to identify the conscious sensory properties with? And this is a familiar question which has been much debated in the philosophy of mind for the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, do we want to identify conscious mental properties with strictly physical properties or do we want to identify them with, with functional structural properties if we had, what's he called, commander data who's structurally just like me but made of different physics, does he feel the same? That's, that's a very familiar debate, and you might say somebody like me who wants to identify conscious properties, vehicle properties, owes an answer to that question, strictly physical or, or functional. Uh, well, it's an interesting question, but I don't need to take a view today. I, I don't really care. To make my point, all I want to say is, look, you want to think of conscious properties as intrinsic vehicle properties and not as relational representational properties. For all I'm going to argue today, they may be strictly physical, they may be functional, but when I say functional, I mean internal functional, short arm functional, a matter of housing a certain causal structure inside your body, not a matter of being related in a certain way to things outside. Or for all I care, they could be dualist mind properties. I mean, physicalism might be false, they might be dualist mind. I still want to identify the conscious properties with intrinsic properties uh, of the dualist mind rather than relational representational properties. I'm going to stop in a second and I'm going to skip most of this section 
and just make the point. So, a standard objection is that what I'm saying doesn't seem to line up with the way we talk about experiences. And there's a, there's a famous Strawson quote, which is in the, the paper, not up there. Uh, Strawson points out, when somebody asks you to describe your experience, you describe your experience in terms of what it's about. You describe it representationally. I, I see the red light of the setting sun filtering through the black and thickly, thickly clustered branches of the elms. I see the dappled deer grazing in groups on the vivid green grass. I think Strauss is dead right. That's how we talk about our experiences. We describe them by specifying what they're about. We describe them. We identify them in language in terms of their representational properties. I don't mind that at all. Uh, that seems to me a fact about what we do in language when we're talking about experience, and it doesn't necessarily have any immediate implications for the the nature of the conscious properties we have when we have experiences. Experiences have representational properties as well as conscious properties, and in the first instance our language picks them out via their representational properties. As it happens, I think it's uh, highly plausible, in addition, in language, we indicate the conscious properties of experience by specifying these representational properties. But that's just a familiar case of, a case of the familiar phenomenon of uh, identifying something, water, say, via some properties, odorless colours and so on, which it has only contingently. You identify something via a contingent description. You identify the, the conscious properties via this further feature that they have of representing such, such and such, which they have only contingently. Okay, I'm going to finish by addressing what, at least in the recent literature, and I think in most people's minds, makes them feel that the, the view I'm defending must be wrong, and uh, conscious sensory experiences must have a relational structure. And I think the reason most people are unsympathetic or don't like the view I'm defending is nothing to do with the way we talk about experiences, but how experience strikes us when we introspect. The thought is that look, surely we know directly when we think about the nature of experience that it is representational. In the contemporary debate, and this thought goes back quite a long way, but in the contemporary debate, this is... Uh, uh, goes back to, to Harmon. And he points out that when we introspect, we don't seem to be able to identify any intrinsic, non-relational features of our experience. All that happens when we introspect, I introspect the experience I have of uh, Sam's Head, and all that happens is I kind of focus harder on Sam's head, and uh, it seems that uh, I'm never going to get at the intrinsic features of my experience. I just get at the fact it represents uh, something out there. 
And I find this line of argument completely uncompelling. Uh, it's not at all obvious that introspection shows me that I'm in contact with, uh, uh, with the blueness of a shirt rather than something else. What seems to me uh, uh, true in what Harmon draws our attention to, what's true about the exercise he, he asks, invites us to, to uh, perform, stop looking at Sam's head and think about the nature of your experience, is that when you do that, nothing changes, or at least nothing changes sensorily. My visual experience is just the same when I'm thinking about Sam's head and when I'm thinking about my experience of Sam's head. But if you think about it, that's surely going to be consistent with pretty much any theory of the nature of conscious sensory experience. All that says is nothing sensorily changes when you switch from thinking about Sam to thinking about your experience. When you switch from uh, focusing on the world to focusing internally. And that seems to me consistent with a sense datum theory or a representational theory or a uh, direct realist theory or my theory. Uh, I mean, the observation puts some constraints on the nature of introspection. It implies that introspection isn't something that changes your sensory experience. But that's not a big constraint. That's not very surprising, it seems to me. Introspection is a matter of cognitively thinking about your experience rather than thinking about something else. And in general, cognitive thinking about something doesn't change its nature, nor does it change the nature of my sensory experience. I'm going to finish now just by being explicit about what I want to say about the kind of issue Harmon is drawing our attention to. Because I guess this is the ugly part of my view. But I don't think it's so ugly. I think it works out quite, quite nicely. Uh, so I think we have conscious sensory properties. And I think there's a sense in which we're aware of them directly. We know which ones we're having when we introspect. So when we introspect, we uh, become aware that I have the conscious property that's normally produced by blue things. Let's call it blueness. Peacock calls it blue, blue star. I'll, I'll, I'll use Peacock's uh, terminology. Uh, so when I introspect, I know that there's blueness here. But that's a property of my experience. It's not the kind of blueness that shirts can have. Uh, and of course, in a good case, when there is a blue shirt, perfectly good sense in which I'm perceiving the blueness of the shirt. Uh, uh, but I perceive the blueness of the shirt as a result of having another property, and that I know about directly introspectively, of blue star. You might worry, many people worry, isn't which is the property that I'm aware of? And there's quite a lot of awareness talk in this area. Uh, you might think, isn't it, doesn't there just have to be one property that I'm aware of? I mean, aren't I? Is the conscious blue star 
And surely I'm aware of that, it's conscious. And there's a bonus of the shirt. And aren't I aware of that? Because, I mean, it's a good case, I can see the colour of the shirt. I don't want to deny that I'm aware of the shirt's colour. And I certainly don't. But I think in the sense in which I'm aware of the shirt's colour, I'm not aware of the blueness. In fact, I'm not sure that in the normal case, when I'm not introspecting, there's any good sense in which I'm aware of the shirt's blueness. When I'm not introspecting, I... Sorry. I misspoke. In, 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 in the case where I'm not introspecting, I'm, I'm aware, I'm perceiving the shirt's blueness. I'm not, in any sense, aware of blue star, of the property I myself have. I have blue star, but when I'm not introspecting, there's no mental state that's focused on blue star, and there's no sense in which anything of blue star, I'm aware of blue star. Uh, I have blue star, in virtue of that, I perceive the blueness of the shirt, but when I'm not introspecting, uh, I, I'm not aware of the blue star. When I am introspecting, I'm aware of the blue star. What about the case where I'm hallucinating? There's no blue shirt, there's no blueness. And I'm not introspecting. What am I aware of then? Well, I say I'm not aware of anything. And I'm not aware of the external blueness because there's no external blueness there. I'm not aware of my blue star because I'm not introspecting. Ah, but of course, I have the blue star, I am conscious, and that just seems to me, seems to me fine. So that's my time's up. I'll stop there and... Uh, that's it. Conscious properties are intrinsic and non-relational and not representational at all. Thanks.